0: Okay, this is December the 31st, 2017. It's the seventh day of Christmas, and we're gonna talk about the Nicene Creed and finish it out today. But first, we were having this little pocket conversation about liturgy, that maybe some of you are interested in, some of you heard it. So um, recently, uh, Bishop Doyle, every year at clergy conference, he addresses us regarding liturgical things he observes in the church, and, and you know, practices that we as clergy, because you know, here's, here's the polity. The bishop, is, the bishop is the diocese. He literally is, so if he, this is counterintuitive, right? But when he goes to Hong Kong, the Diocese of Texas just went to Hong Kong. So, so he, in his person, is the Diocese of Texas. That's strange, but it's, just, it's the case, right? Now, really what that means, you know, there's vicars, who serve at missions who are appointed by the bishop and can be removed same day, right? The bishop is able to move a vicar anywhere, immediately. And then there's parishes like us who have rectors, and the rector can't be removed unless we steal money or have an affair. I mean, it's really about it. You know, a rector could be lazy, can't be removed from that. A rector could be a heretic, could tell you false doctrine week after week, can't remove a rector for that. You can have an ecclesiastical court to try them for heresy, but the bishop cannot do that by her or his self. A, a parish can connive to get rid of a rector by trimming their salary. You know, They can say the budget doesn't support it. However, if the budget does support the salary, if the budget does support the salary and a parish cuts it, the parish can get in trouble with the diocese. So this is a weird thing, right? I mean, this is again, this is the church we live in. No polity is perfect. Ours isn't either, but this is when we live in. Yes, sir. Just to emphasize
1: what you said about the bishop being the diocese until about 20 years ago, something like that. The bishop, all the church properties, this building, was the bishop's personal property.
0: Yeah, and what's happened is, the, so so all the all the property in the diocese belonged to the bishop personally. What bishops have done essentially. Is given it to the diocesan corporation. And that's just to protect the bishop who truly could continue to own it. I want to make sure you know the bishop can do that. Um, but in big, big dioceses like ours and like Los Angeles, there's the diocesan corporation especially, and that's a big deal. In fact, the bishop of Los Angeles, I don't know if it's happened yet, is on trial by canon law for selling a parish, not a mission, selling a parish sort of too openly. Because the, the, the parish has different rules from the mission. The, the, the parish is like a, sort of like a state within the union. The mission is really just an extension of the union. So the bishop of Los Angeles sold a parish, sold the property. It's extremely lucrative. I mean, this is Los Angeles, right? and then is now going to trial with, on the jury are parishioners and clergy, and then I think just regular jurors, and the bishop being tried by both civil and canon law, somehow simultaneously, some blend of this, for selling, for selling it, for overextending his his, um, what do I call this, his episcopate. This is an interesting case, that's John Bruno. who I think can only be bishop for another year before he ages out. You turn 72 and you're done in the Episcopal. That's just the rules, right? So
1: there weren't any people.
0: This was an empty... Well, no, there there was. There was a church meeting there and he sold it because it was like a $5 million property. Uh, Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles, let me tell you, not hurting for money. (laughs) Episcopal Diocese of Texas, not hurting for money. And it's just important to know these sorts of things. Now, I don't, I'm not saying the bishop did anything wrong. I'm saying it's going, it's going to court because people have pushed it. Okay? So back to the other principle, a rector or a vicar, either one of us, really what we do is we represent the bishop who can't be everywhere at one time. And this is this bizarre thing as representative to the bishop. I'm the steward of the property. So I hire a staff and the staff reports to me, not to you, or the vestry. The vestry has nothing to do with my staff. This is just sort of how it works. Uh, Many people don't know this, (laughs) but this is our polity. This is what we do. Now, of course, there's ways we have that conversation, you know, Uh, because obviously, while the rector can do many, many things, canonically, that would tax our relationship. So this was actually one of the questions on my general ordination exam, which is called like the clergy bar. It was a four-day, 21-page essay, and at the end of it, I got pass or fail. That was all I got. I got one sentence after 21 pages. It's really disappointing, to be honest with you. One of the questions was, a local mosque is going out of business, and the imam has asked to have the juma, the Friday prayers, in your church canonically as rector, this question was worded like this, canonically as rector, you are the sole decision maker, what's your decision? <laughs> this is a baiting question, of course, because only a foolish rector would say whatever I want. <laughs> you know, you kind of have to create some education, and if not, some buy in, at least buy in enough, right? It was one of those interesting questions because there were people in the parish who were ordination track that said, well, they can meet in a sanctuary, no, they could meet in the parish hall, but they couldn't meet in the sanctuary. And when impressed why, they would say, well, the reserved sacrament's in there. So you can't have, can't have a non-Christian service with the reserved sacrament. And the question was, why? Well, they would defile it. And then, well, that's really crazy, right? Because that's not how that works. <laughs> you know? it was, that was an interesting, growing conversation, right? Because can you ever defile the sacrament? I mean, this was like the kind of thing we talked about. Anyway, back to the other thing. The question was about the maniple. So the bishop says, he comes to clergy conference and says there's two things I've noticed in your churches. Number one, many of you are no longer using the lavabo. That's where the priest gets her or his hands sort of washed before communion. Now, we know it's symbolic. In this church, we use distilled water only, uh, because that's clean, I guess. Uh, uh, Listen, friends, we know that that's water. That's not antibacterial, we know that. It's symbolic, right, about clean hands and a clean prayer. A lot of parishes don't do it anymore at all. And the bishop was sort of like, good for y'all. But he did say, he's noticed that a lot of people, are instead of that or with that, are now using hand sanitizer and doing this elaborate ritual over there on the side of, of antimicrobially cleaning their hands. He, he, he sort of said... I think he was just being funny, right? So he was just talking about how there's this new liturgy around hand sanitizer. The other thing he said was, I go to your parishes and I see you're no longer wearing the maniple. And the maniple maniple originated as a napkin at communion. The priest wears it over her or his left wrist. And I found them here. Uh, And so I started wearing them, (laughs) because we have them. I think Jim Smalley brought them. (coughs) I don't think they're napkins, because I can tell you they probably cost like $400, and there's no way I'm wiping your mouth on that $400 napkin with wine or crumbs, either one. <laughs> but I did find it, and I wore it on Christmas Eve, solemn, high, holy mass, and I'll continue to wear them, I think, because we have them, and because it's, it's this interesting thing. Uh, we, can, we don't use them as a napkin, and in some ways, it's sort of like, <coughs> this sort of fancy route that we've kind of gotten over. But what I was telling Susan and Nick that I think is really interesting as a priest is living in balance. Living in balance, right? So for any time you take an element of the service and you, of the liturgy and you lower it, it's helpful to take another element, I think, and raise it. And what do I mean by that? Well, the sermon is very low here. The sermon's always very low because it's ambulatory. So So a high sermon is given from a pulpit. Not an ambo. See, we don't even have a pulpit at this church. We have something that's called an ambo. In regular parlance, we call it a lectern, right? But but in church words, it's an ambo. It's a place from which you read the scriptures and the prayers of the people. A a high church would have that, and on the other side, would have a pulpit that's usually elevated. So we don't architecturally have a high church. This is important. We we don't. Another, Another obvious thing about that is that our church has almost 180-degree seating. You know, we don't, we don't, the choir, really, we probably have 135-degree seating because nobody sits in the, in the vacuum where the columbarium was, you know? Even when we have high attendance, I've never really seen that seating used. So we've just cleared it out. But that's, that's not high church. High church is a nave that is rectangular and two transepts and in the transept sit either the altar party, or the choir, or they even sit under the, um, the dome, which we don't have, just sort of notice. Architecturally, we have, a, we have a right to church. It's important to know, we do, we have a right to church. It's one of those hard things about right one, right one competes against the architecture in our space. If you truly go into it, it sort of fights it. And the architecture will always win. Now I don't mean that that's bad. I didn't mean that that's bad. It's just something to think through, right? You can never fight your architecture. It will always beat you, always. Uh, so what we have in right One, interestingly enough, if you've been, are some very open and therefore low elements. So to have an open table at the Eucharist is a low element. It is not Anglo-Catholic. Does that make sense what I'm saying? I think we're committed to that as a parish. I believe that. Because there came a point where I think one Sunday I left out the invitation, and and I got hell for it. (laughs) I just want you to know, right? The invitation to the table from Iona that we've now been using every week for two and a half years. That's very low, though. I want you to hear that is not Anglo-Catholic. That's the opposite. An open table is the opposite. So because we have things like that in our service, I think it behooves us to strive for balance. So that means if something is low, there should be something high to, to raise and lower it so that they meet in the middle. Does that sort of make sense? Because the truth is, you know, the tradition in the Episcopal Church is huge. And I realized um, in the Diocese of San Diego, the bishop was a terrible chanter Now the new one, Catherine Jareffy Shorey is now the the sort of the interim bishop. I don't know if you know who that is. She she was the presiding bishop for a number of years. I don't know what her chanting is like, I have no idea. But I can tell you Jim Matthews, our previous bishop, was not a chanter. (laughs) And I would go to services conducted by the bishop and I wondered, why are you chanting? It is clearly not you. And the answer I got was, if the bishop doesn't chant, very low likelihood that the priests will either. Thinking about a whole diocese not chanting, that might be comfortable for you, but it is so ingrained in our tradition that we would be at a loss if we never chanted. And I actually believe that's right. I do. And I was practicing for for Christmas Day because it's a different chant. And I can tell you, I don't read music at all. And I'm a terrible singer, as many of you know. And chanting is really challenging. If you could only see the notes, you would know how bad I am. And I told my wife, you know, the faster I do this, which I think I'm supposed to be fast, the the harder it is for me. And she's like, well, yeah, but then it's not contemplative anymore. And that's when it occurred to me that the point of chant, for the first time, is to be contemplative. I had not thought about this the last two years I've been doing it. (laughs) I thought the point was to be musical. Well, anyway. (laughs) this is the kind of element that I think in some ways is traditional and then allows for a balanced service when you do things like invite people to the rail. And the same with wearing that weird church hat. Now, I would to tell you, I think the church hat is a great reminder to me not to take myself too seriously because it is so ridiculous looking, right? Um, the tradition of it is that's where the mortarboard came from, and it's a sign of an educated priest because before the Reformation, remember, like half the clergy couldn't read. And they got up and made up the mass. They made it up. And nobody knew because they couldn't read either. So wearing this thing was a symbol that you as a priest were literate. And that was kind of a big deal. And that's why it's a sign we give our high school grads who are hopefully literate. So, so the origins of these things in some ways aren't as high and holy, but, but, but again, they've been used so traditionally. You know, like there's some people who don't wear the chasuble at all, and there's some people who wear the chasuble only at the piece. You know, they, they wear the stole, and they put the chasuble on later. And my training was somewhere in the middle of low and high. When you put the chasuble on at the piece, you're drawing attention to yourself. So just wear it even though it's hot, and you know, that's just the way I was formed, quite honestly, so I continue to wear the chasuble if I'm celebrating, whether I'm preaching or not. Uh, and, and I do think that's a high element, I do, I think that's a high element, that the, that the celebrant wears the chasuble the whole service. It's a low element to put it on. Now many of you have been in the church much longer than I have. In fact, probably all of you have. I almost guarantee you, you all have. So, hopefully, you hear a little bit what I'm saying, and you can say, like, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, it used to be you always did it, and now we don't necessarily do that anymore. It's interesting to think about the liturgical change even in your lifetime, right? And, and it's also interesting to think about how each parish has a dictated expression of piety. I'll tell you more on that in a second, but Ms. Ellen was gonna say something. Yes, so you can have a cantor. Ellen's asking, can you have a non-priest that could be a deacon, that could be a lay-authorized minister, chant the Eucharistic? So the answer is they can chant the prayers of the people. They can chant all the liturgy except the Eucharistic prayer. Only a priest can pray that or chant it. That's our polity. Now, here, I, I chant... The, um, the Great Thanksgiving, we do that every week at 10.30. We're about to do it at eight o'clock. When we get to Lent, we're gonna do it at eight o'clock because we're doing right One at eight and 10.30. And that means we're gonna chant at both. <laughs> eight o'clockers will not like this, but we're doing it. Because <laughs> uh, if they want to be traditional, they're gonna get it. <laughs> okay, so anyway, we're gonna, we're gonna do that. I have to learn that chant, it's terribly difficult for me. It's terribly difficult. Um, At 1030, I chant the Great Thanksgiving, and then I chant the the preface all the way up to the Sanctus, and I stop. But you should know that I could chant the rest of the Eucharistic prayer, the prayers of the people, the Lord's Prayer, the blessing, the invocation. I could chant all that. At my ordination at the cathedral, all that was chanted, and I was sitting there. Now I'm being ordained, and I thought, oh man, I don't think I could do this. Like, when is this going to be over? That's what I was thinking. It's, it's too contemplative for me. So, so I don't know that we'll ever do that here. I just don't know, mainly because I don't think I can learn it. it. There is something neat about it, especially on a very solemn occasion to hear the whole thing chanted. I mean, it's just nowhere else in the world, and this I think is important actually, nowhere else in the world can you go and do that. Nowhere can you do that. I, I, I realized very compassionately on Christmas Eve why people only come on Christmas and Easter. Because those are the two days, frankly, that are among the most beautiful in the church year. Those are the days where you come with complete strangers, and you all hold a candle, even if for five minutes, and the lights go out, and the music has harps and strings, you know? And and you're in a room with strangers, all for different reasons, interacting frankly with beauty and with strangers. It's like going to a movie. You go to a movie, you enjoy going to the theater with a bunch of strangers. You you don't know anybody in that theater, but you like going. And you all have different reasons to be there. You could be bored, you could be interested, you could have kids, I mean you know, there's tons of reasons. But this, right, this Christmas and Easter is just so full of beauty and hopefully The beauties and the story we tell too, so I'm no longer against those Christmas, Easter people. You know, I realize like that's that's a high holy day because it is, and and that's our job is to make it a high holy day. I think those are days because again, where else are you going to go where there's chant? I I can't think of anything else that there's chant. I mean, you know, Gloria Day, nothing against them, but you're never going to hear chant there. You're just not so this is like your reward for coming is you get to do this thing you never get to do and, 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 uh, and, and I'm sort of a sort of big believer in that, yes ma'am okay tell me the,
1: the
0: origin of the the large of the okay so the real origin of uh, you got to go older than that is something called the sanctus bells which acolytes t- typically do when the when the host is raised, do this in remembrance of me, there should be like a gring, gring, gring. It's four little bells on a cross stick. Yeah. We have them. The origin of that is that during the Middle Ages, it depends what you read, but, but probably the origin. You can always find a dissenting opinion. Probably the origin is that during the Middle Ages, when the mass was in Latin and no one knew what it meant, people got tired <laughs> And that was the wake up, <laughs> pay attention now, the, the link. Now, now I want you to know that um, whether it's of you know, poor design, you know, poor practical, I mean, the verger has a stick. That was to beat people with, right? And our vergers still carry sticks, and they won't hit you with them. Or they won't be vergers, <laughs> among other things that will happen to them legally. Uh, but anyway, they don't hit sticks, so they bear this, this marker of tradition that's not really great. You, you know? Not great. Um, and, and the dring is maybe not great. It's sort of the wake-up thing. But there is something, I think, interesting about the musicality that c- contributes to the solemnity. Right? So these are, these are the phrases in the gospel. This is my body. This is my blood. Those come in the gospel and they come in the letters of Paul. See, for me, those phrases, that, that tone... Has an additional sensorial component to it beyond just the language, to emphasize the solemnity of the phrase and of the elements being raised. Okay, um, we have the singing bowl, which is Buddhist. We have it. <laughs> um, we use that instead of the brring brring brring, mainly because it's a one-time, it's a one-tone, and not a bunch of little bells. By the way, the bells are also Buddhist. Okay, so. This is what we do here to, to emphasize the salinity of the elements. I'm pretty committed to it. Really, a long time, and, and, and um, you, you know I think at least in the Episcopal Church it goes all the way back to Henrician Edwardian reforms. So Henry really was a Catholic. Really was a Catholic. And he really didn't want a Protestant church. He just wanted to be in charge. I, I mean, I'm just telling you, that's my read of Henry. He wanted the Catholic Church without the Pope. And, and I think, I don't think it was just expediency. I don't think so. I think it's one thing to say Henry just wanted to be in control because he wanted what he wanted. And, and Henry was a trained theologian. He, he went all the way through. He initially supported the Pope. and then I, And then I do think. Henry himself had a little bit of Protestant come into him, a little bit. And, and then he became sort of, not anti-papal, but, but no longer willing to bear the secular authority of a religious authority. He was the secular authority, that was his decision, right? And, and the church and politics were so entwined that Henry really, I think, was just trying to unwind some of that. He, you know, his wife, his second wife, Anne Boleyn was a low reformer, and even though he cut her head off, um, Edward, his son, through Anne Boleyn, no wait, through Jane Seymour, was essentially raised, though, by the chancellors that Anne Boleyn had put in place. So Anne had brought in the tutors for Edward. Edward became king when he was 14, 12, one of those. I mean, he didn't know anything. His the cabinet was running the country, and they were low Protestants. They did away with all the vestments. There were no chasubles worn under Edward, none. That was all forbidden. There was no raising the plates. That was all done away with. Elizabeth is the one who sort of said there can be lots of variation. So she didn't reinstitute vestments, she reallowed them. So that's really it. I mean, how long have we had that, that variation and tradition? Honestly, uh, 450 years. So, so what I want to say is the history of variation, 450 years old, but within that time you get lots of swings back and forward, right? I mean, So, so think about John, John Wesley, who is a priest, is essentially a romantic. And, and if you know anything about the Methodist Church, John Wesley was an Anglican priest to the day he died. He was never a Methodist, never. But what John Wesley said was that we have reason and tradition and scripture to guide us, very Anglican, very Episcopal, but John Wesley said there's a fourth category to guide us, and that's experience. Now, if, you, if you know your Episcopal history, and Richard Hooker came up with the other three, reason, tradition, experience. No, no, no. <laughs> Scripture, reason, tradition. Uh, Richard Hooker says that experience belongs under the realm of reason. So it's not like we don't consider experience in the Episcopal Church. We put it under the rubric of reason. Well, John Wesley was a romantic. And he said, no, no, it's a fourth thing, because that's what romantics did. They emphasized, in German, the words gefühl, which we translate as feeling, but is much deeper than that, you know? So, so that's this romantic sentiment that guided the Methodist church. And of course, he was a low churchman because he was in Georgia, which was a penal colony. <laughs> Just want to remind you, he was a minister to a bunch of crooks, the church history is sort of interesting. One other bit about this, and then we'll hop onto the creed, because this is actually going somewhere with the creed. Um, the church I came from in Coronado was founded, and if, has anybody been to, to, anybody been to San Diego before? If you've been, you probably know Coronado is an island in sort of uh, Mission Bay, and it, it, until, I mean, 40 years ago, there was nothing there, honestly. It was just a naval base, and you had to take a ferry to get there. But over the last 40 years, it's developed to be highfalutin. And they've, they've built a whole um, whole manufactured sandbar to connect it way down at, uh, down by Imperial Beach. And now there's a bridge that goes over there. Anyway, that was my, my first parish, was, was um, in uh, the first parish where I served my third church. All right, anyway, there it there, there was. So C- Coronado was interesting. We celebrated our 125th anniversary while I was there as a, as a deacon and then later as a priest. And um, there were rules. The person who built the church uh, was a wealthy riverboat captain who'd lost his daughter at an early age. So she died when she was like 14, and he built the church, the whole building, in memorial to his daughter and sort of gave it to the diocese with conditions. The only other church on the island was Catholic. And this man was a low Protestant. And so when you go there today, you see the foundation stone says, Christ Protestant Episcopal Church. You know, the Episcopal Church of America is called the Protestant Episcopal Church of America. That's our legal name. Because we were the Catholic option. I just want you to know, we were the Protestant option. So in the, Protestant, in the Christ Protestant Episcopal Church, Captain Hind, who um, used some of the granite that was intended for the Hotel Del Coronado, same builder as the Hotel Del, if you've been there, that's like one of the top fanciest hotels in the country, like these legacy historic places, right? Um, built a church. There are Tiffany stained glass windows that were built in New York and circumnavigated South America to be delivered to Christ, Protestant Episcopal Church. The angels in the windows depict his daughter, Camille Hind. So he had Tiffany enshrine her forever. And, And these are the things Captain Hind insisted on. There would be no candles on the Lord's table. No one would refer to the Lord's table as an altar. The minister would be referred to as Mister, not Father. Alms basins would never be raised. And then there was another interesting thing architecturally. The center window is of Christ the Good Shepherd. So when you look at the chancel, it's Christ the Good Shepherd, and there was never a cross in the chancel. Now, if the church violated any of the rules, they forfeited the building and the property. (laughs) This is really interesting. So you think through, How that fits the Episcopal Church, you know. In the 40s, I think, or 50s, the church went to the heirs of Captain Hind and asked for a release on those restrictions, and they gave it. The church was founded as a low-Protestant church. In the 80s, they brought in a priest. Did you know... um, Oh, what's his name? This is before the Lindemans. Uh, Walter... Oh, man, what's his name? Whatever his name is, not bad, but Anglo-Catholic wore a cope around the island. Do you know what a cope is? It's a useless garment. I just want you to know. It costs a lot more than a chasuble. You can't wear it at the Eucharist. You wear it during a procession, and and basically it has like a, it's a cape is what it is. It's a fancy cape that costs $8,000. So you, you walk in during the procession, and you sort of take the cope off, and then when it's time for the Eucharist, you put the chasuble on, and you might have acolytes hold the chasuble out. Like, hold it and fluff it, you know, so that you could see the garment and all its splendor. So, so, so Walter was an Anglo-Catholic priest. And he was there a long time, and he fought the architecture. <laughs> Again, he would go get a donut in his cassock, which is that all-black thing. And um, he just wouldn't fly him with it people. You know, it's just you just can't do that to folks. You know, you just can't do it. Oh, he was there a long time. The Lindemans did it a little bit, but then but then then they called my sort of my mentoring rector Mr. Harrison. <laughs> uh, we called him Edward actually. We didn't call him Father Edward. Some people did anyway Edward who was really more middle of the was really more middle more in keeping with Heinz rules. We did elevate the plates, we did have candles, we did call it an altar. So, Walter Adelman put in a bronze cross in front of the window, and Edward took it away because it didn't belong there. So just imagine this, right? You've got a Tiffany window that circumnavigated South America, and then you go and put a bronze cross in front of it, you are fighting the architecture of the building. You cannot win, do you you know what I mean? Imagine putting some cheap little junky cross in front of a Tiffany window, that's what they did. Now, I don't want to say it's wrong, I just mean they, they built it to not have that. It's back up. I like the window. It turned out the Good Shepherd is an older Christian symbol for Jesus and the crosses. It's older. In, in this little story, what I tried to tell you is part of the range of the church, and that churches make decisions and they have discussions and they have clergy changes and they have personal changes and and, and in some ways we're amorphous. You know, there was a church that was very Anglo-Catholic in, in San Diego that I visited one time. Uh, <laughs> this is when I was a churchgoer, I visited, so it was a right one service, with garments, and then there was like a band, with like drums, and guitars, and and the sermon was right out of the Southern Baptist Church I grew up in, and it was the strangest thing I'd ever been to, because it was this, not an intentional blend of high and low church, it was right one with a band. And. The, the priest wore a garment that like told me I was going to hell and there was an altar call. It was really strange. Um, this is it. So When we say in the creed, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the creed is talking about this that we've just been talking about. I know it sounds like I've introduced that and it's crazy, right? But but it's not. I mean, this is the really the interesting thing. The, these are the words here. There's no way that what I'm saying sounds like we belong to one church, because we all not only do it differently, but we believe differently about it. I think it's really important because the stuff we do in the service reflects what we believe about God and each other. It does. Oh, no, 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 that's just traditional stuff. It is not. <laughs> it is not. The way our clergy dress and the, what we call the Lord's table reflects what we believe, period. I call it an altar for convenience sake, but I really think it's the Lord's table. No, you don't. <laughs> we are not that advanced as people, our words create our reality, and so do our symbols. Here's, here's your definition. When the C is lowercase, it just means universal. So we believe in one universal church. But I think what we have to come to grips with, with all this liturgical conversation that I think is fascinating, honestly, and, um, and therefore I think it's interesting and meaningful because it's fascinating, is, is the oneness of church. So we believe in one church, and this is important for me, is this sort of, and, and church is another great word, isn't it? It literally means gathering. We believe in one gathering. Now, I grew up Southern Baptist, there's a lot of things I don't like about it, a lot of things I don't like about it, but I'm positive the Southern Baptist Church can be part of God's one, holy, Catholic Church? Can be. (laughs) I have to qualify. So, So we believe in one gathering that represents the body of Christ on Earth, one, through many different forms, in many different communities, with many different contexts. And this is the neat thing about the creed, context change. But even in the middle of different contexts, it's universal you know it's Roman when the C is capital. Okay? So this equals Roman Catholic. This equals universal. We always pray, and here we pray for the Catholic Church, including the Romans and the Southern Baptists and us. I mean, I think that's really important. The Episcopal Church is not the Catholic Church. We can be part of it. We can be. Its important that we like my Baptist friends can be part of it don't have to. there's no guarantees here yes ma'am so a book. Right on here. You have that. with a capital C so our prayer book is really interesting because when the prayer book was composed this distinction I've just shown you did not exist this is Uh, become a secretarial expediency, and it's more modern, to contrast universal with Roman. So the prayer book alternates sometimes intentionally, because the prayer book has not seceded that ground that the rest of us have pretty much given. Capital C means Roman Catholic. We have pretty much decided that. You won't ever see a printed bulletin with a capital C, because I won't print it. Apostolic? Yeah, I'll talk about that in a second. That's fine. Yeah, yes, sir. There's lots of reasons for it. And you know, this is a tough thing about language, right? Is that you say, well, that word you said can't mean what you think it means. Look in the dictionary until they redo the dictionary and it means that. And it's sort of like, no, why did you betray me as a parent? Yeah, anyway. That's how dictionaries work. Oh, holy, important too. holy, one, holy. Remember, holy uh, doesn't mean, it's not a piety consideration. It really means biblically, theologically, it means extraordinary. And I think that becomes important. Are we ordinary gatherings or are we extraordinary gatherings? If we're ordinary, we, not, we might not be participating in the universal church. If we... If our participation results in something extraordinary, then we are. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? If church is a social club where we reinforce our own values, and God hates the same people we do, we're very ordinary and not holy. I think it's important, right? Church is not here to reinforce our values. We don't need church for that. We do that anyway. right? We don't come to worship ourselves. When we reinforce our values consistently, we are worshiping ourselves. That's not holy. That's ordinary. I think this is important. I mean, I really really think it's important. Okay, what about apostolic? Apostolic means, in this sense, right, that there is an unbroken succession of people going all the way back to Jesus who have exerted influence leadership in the church. And the way we express that in the Episcopal church is with the word Episcopal. So Episcopal means a church governed by, bis- by bishops. It means that there's an overseer. Our tendency is to say the bishop is more important, but the prayer book reminds us that all are called to ministry in the church and some are called to the, bishop- to the ministry of the episcopas or the bishop. So apostolic really means that Jesus laid hands on the disciples, depending which gospel you read, uh, either the day he came back on Resurrection Sunday or on Pentecost, one or the other, laid hands on them and commissioned them to go tell people the good news. And they commissioned a group of their own disciples. It doesn't mean they were following the person, but you see they had gatherings that they were a part of, and they commissioned people, and those people commissioned people, commissioned people, commissioned people, commissioned commissioned Andy Doyle. Does that make sense? It's sort of difficult to do, the difference between disciples and apostles, because quite honestly, in the earliest church, there wasn't necessarily this, this, different arrangement that meant a lot that has come to become 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 hierarchical okay Um, but really a disciple this is the word in greek mathetes and it really means like a follower it's where we get discipline right so It's sort of like following a way you've been shown. Does that sort of make sense? It doesn't mean that you have to always be behind somebody. It means you've been shown a way, and you walk that way. Um, The other word, apostle, really means something more like, this isn't quite right, because the word martyr means witness, but it sort of means something more like, a a, a witness. So were all the disciples apostles? Rather, were all the apostles disciples? Yes. And then somewhere later on, we decided that the apostles were limited to 12 initially, and then from the 12, they appointed other people, and that's the apostolic accession. But you would never call our bishop the Apostle Andy Doyle because we've just decided that there's 12 even though there's 13, because when Judas hanged himself, he, you know, there, then there was another one. Do you know about this? Matthias. You know how they chose Matthias? They rolled the dice. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? They had a magic eight ball, and they said, maybe Matthias. Ooh, shake it again. I mean, that's sort of how it went. Okay. Um, so, so there are people who will call themselves apostles, to claim the authority term. I went to a church in college that was a big college church, and the pastor started calling himself apostle, and that was like, red flag! <laughs> Why would you need to do that? I mean, In some ways, if you were a follower at a certain point, you're, you're going you're to be an apostle. But we just have limited the term. It may be helpful to know that, that in the Bible itself, there's the twelve apostles, you know, there's people like James and John, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot and Peter. There's those people. But then Paul calls other people apostles that weren't named in the Gospels. Like a woman named Priscilla and her husband, Aquila. In the Bible, the more important person always comes first. It's never Aquila and Priscilla In Greek, it's Priscilla and Aquila. She was more important. (laughs) You know, the most important disciple, many people say, is Peter or it's John. The Bible is definitely not in favor of John because when you read the Apostles, it's always James and John, the sons of Zebedee. James was much more important in the early Christian community than John was. There's other women. There's a woman called Junia, who's called an apostle, not a disciple. So more than 12 apostles in the Bible, and, and in, in some ways, that's how we get to this idea of apostolic succession. There's not just 12. There's more than 12. But again, words change, and, and, and there's just 12. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes, ma'am. Would apostles be leaders and disciples be called? Not necessarily. It's not always that clear cut. Really, what, what kind of happened in the early church is the, the differentiation was these were people who had seen Jesus physically. That became a distinction. Paul is called the least important apostle because he never saw Jesus before he was killed. Paul says he's an apostle because he saw the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. Although what he really saw was a blinding light that blinded him. So did he ever see Jesus with a body? Probably not, or we don't know. Does that make sense? So, so again, lots of people did this. Lots of people did this. The early church decided, oh, we can't make these synonyms. We need to somehow differentiate. These people saw Jesus in the body. So, so this is another reason why we don't use the word anymore for Jim Toole, or Andy Doyle, or anybody else who says they're an apostle, because unlikely they saw uh, the physical Jesus. Some people, maybe, I mean, maybe you could say St. Francis was an apostle because he had the stigmata. And so did um, St. Clair, I think she did too. And maybe Julian of Norwich did, I don't know the answer. Some people have these, you know, gaping wounds that they identify with Jesus, but you don't call him the apostle the Apostle Francis, you call him Saint Francis. (laughs) You you, you know what I mean? So hopefully this is sort of helpful. Again, the idea is that the the extraordinary universal church gathering of Christ on Earth is based on not just eyewitness, but people who physically interacted with Jesus. In some ways, it's an authority claim. We, make this. we didn't make this stuff up. We received it. This is why bishops lay hands on you at Confirmation, too, because they're passing on to you through the laying on of hands, this old symbol. That's an apostolic thing as well. Is that OK? Is that too weird? Any other questions about church, Holy Catholic Apostolic Church? with the Apostles, and I think the even greater connection is we have a direct physical contact with Jesus. And of course, you can read these interesting things from scientists, and, and I'm not one, right? I'm not. But people, when you breathe air and you breathe it out, there's like part of your entity is in the air, so that air doesn't just expire. I mean, right now, you're breathing the same air Jesus breathed. You're also breathing the same air Hitler breathed. I mean, this is just sort of important to know. And, and actually, I think that's helpful, right? Is that at some point, we choose which air we breathe. Are we going to, what kind of inspiration are we going to, what's going to inspire us, the breath of Jesus or Hitler? Okay, anyway. <laughs> I mean, you read those things, and I, and I hate to be a spoiler, but, you know, I'm just taking it seriously. Okay, all right. One Holy Catholic Church We believe in the forgiveness of sins. That's a big one. We believe in that. Remember, believe means we orient our life around trusting that that happens. We have to decide, will it happen? Has it happened? I think it's important. That's an important distinction. And remember that... Sin is this really strange word, because in the New Testament, very rarely is, I mean, I don't think ever, the New Testament is really never interested in that. Never. The New Testament is interested in this. Well, Mike, you just put a capital letter on it. What's the difference? This is a power, a power, something that is supernatural, that separates us, from experiencing God's presence, that's just stuff we do. Now, obviously, some of the stuff we do contributes to this power. But remember, if you weren't racist the rest of your life, racism would still reign in the world. This is a category of things that separates people from God that you have no individual power to defeat. No matter how much you want to. This is what Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Powers. Powers are things like sin and death with a capital D, the pit with a capital P. And the capitals are really important because God is not here to deliver us from dying. You know that for sure, because Jesus died. I mean, (laughs) you know, if, if, if God were against dying, then Jesus wouldn't have done it. And we wouldn't do it anymore either. It's really clear, biblically, God made that thing. God made our bodies to die. God created that reality where we die. And that's fine with God. What's not okay is living in death. That's why it has a capital. It's a power. Death is, it looks like, I think, if you, if you know somebody, it looks like substance abuse. Anybody know an alcoholic or drug addict? It's really tempting on the way, on, on the outside. You've got to know them well, I mean. It's really tempting on the outside to say, why do you keep doing that? <laughs> Just stop. If you know somebody really well, you start to realize they can't stop. Because they're subject to a power that is greater than themselves. A power like death. If you've ever met one of these people, or you've met somebody who has like a borderline personality disorder, or you've met somebody whose brain does not think causally, that is, they don't associate cause and effect. You have ever met one of these people, you understand why people believed in exorcism because there's something clearly wrong with them that they can't change. It's almost like there's a hideous, insidious power ruling over their faculties. God, I wish you could just drive it out with an exorcism. I wish it. I don't think it works like that. Do you know that we have an exorcism right in the Episcopal Church? Does anybody, anybody know this? It's not in your prayer book because you cannot do it. It is not in the Book of Occasional Services, because I cannot do it. (laughs) It is in a secret book that you can't buy, called the Bishop's Book, that you get when you're consecrated bishop. So a bishop can do an exorcism, or appoint someone to do an exorcism. I don't know if Andy Doyle does those. I don't know. I do know that there's a retired priest in this community who's done one before when he was canon to the ordinary. I know that. There are people in my life that I wish (laughs) could just have an exorcism. And and by the way, I wish it would work. (laughs) It's okay to say. But, but, but But I do think if you've met the kind of people that I'm talking about, People who are in the throes of abuse, or let's, just, let's be even more real, people who have suffered abuse that they had no part in. It was given to them, and they could not resist it. As a child, as a teenager, as an adult. Somehow, whatever that person did to them has entered them into that realm. I'm talking theologically. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with them. It means, right, it means that they're living in this legacy that is daily and secondly threatening them from being separated from the joy that God imagined for them. And the Bible is interested in those powers being defeated and one of the ways we join God in doing that is by forgiveness. Notice, we believe in the forgiveness of sin. We believe that God does it. The creed doesn't say that we also believe we should do it. (laughs) But it sure leaves the door open. sure leaves the door open. You know, at the peace, going back to the liturgy, the reason we have the peace is so that you can be reconciled with the people you've hurt and have hurt you in the service. Anybody ever been reconciled in the service at the peace? I usually just say hello. My wife doesn't like it because people hug her, so she goes to the bathroom (laughs) at the peace. But that's why we have it in the service, It's so that before you come to the Eucharist, you have already settled the issues you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Imagine if we really did that. We might be in church for hours, which is why we don't do that. (laughs) But that's what the liturgy wants us to do, is to wish peace, God's peace, to people who honestly, we don't want to have peace. So maybe that's the shortened version, is going up to people we think might be mad at us, or who we know we're mad at, and saying, I hope you find God's peace this week, and meaning it. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. I think the truth is, this is what's helpful. This is why I want to, Why I spent a little bit of time on the difference between this, right? We believe in the forgiveness of this. So the people who have been hurt have been hurt by this. Maybe some of this, too. But really, they've been hurt by this. We believe that God is able to so forgiveness doesn't mean it never happened. It doesn't mean it goes away. It's not forgive and forget. Forgiveness, this is an interesting bit, right? And this is one we struggle with a lot. Anne Lamott's version is giving up all hope of having had a different past. Giving up all hope of having had a different past. It sounds like acceptance to me. Acceptance. And I think we can spend a lot of our lives not accepting the things that have been done to us. I think there's a difference between accepting it and settling for it. You know, I mean, the the, the truth. I think there is a difference between accepting and settling. Oh, I think so, I mean, I think think so. I I think to say like, oh, it happened to me and that's good is very different from it happened to me and it won't define me but it it does define how I came to be here. I don't know. This is a hard one for me, Terry. It's really hard. I have not figured this one out in my brain. Or, Or I haven't figured it out in my living either. But I think to say that we believe in this forgiveness of sin is really to say that even if that was done to you, in God it doesn't have to be the last word. I think it can mean that, but I hope it also means forgiveness of yours, too. Forgiveness of mine and yours. I think it's even greater than what people did to me, because I don't know that people who are racist or ageist or sexist thought, I'm gonna just hurt you for being a woman. I think there's something greater to sexism than that. It's something we don't even, realize we're doing, you know? And you just think about, and I have this daughter, I have this daughter, I've told you this before, I never worried about trusting my son to somebody else to watch him. But I worry for my daughter to, mainly because, you know, there's this weird thing, there's certain people, certain people you start to know where you think without that person, the world would be a darker place. Not just one person, but I will tell you, the world would be a darker place without my daughter. I believe that because of just the natural joy and effervescence that she is. And for somebody to do anything to that, that would be sin with a capital S. And I didn't like bite my nail thinking about it, but but I'm afraid of it because I know how real that is in ways I was not afraid for my son. It's silly me, it happens to boys too. but, but You know what I mean. And I don't think anybody who does that to little kids thinks, I'm gonna destroy that little kid. I don't think they think that. I think they are so in this mindset that they're not thinking. And I hate that, but I think there's forgiveness. I don't know that I can do it. I don't know that I would be able to do it. Thank God I haven't been asked to do it. Not with her. I have been asked with my son to do it. Because there were things that happened to him that are sin and death in the pit. Hard to not hate those people. But they didn't do it to be hateful. They did not do it to be hateful. They did it because sin, death, and the pit were reigning in their lives. So... so what they did was wrong, and they're just people. That's a hard thing. In some ways, probably holding those things together is what forgiveness probably has to look like. Otherwise, I'm worshiping myself. I don't like that. And I'm not saying it makes what they did okay. I'm not saying that. right? Because I believe in accountability. I do. But I also know that rarely, when I'm at my worst, did I think I am going to side with hell and fight God and all goodness. I did something impulsively that was bad, or I thought about it and thought some good would come out of it. <laughs> Twisted thinking, right? But, but very rarely at my worst have I thought how bad I could be. I don't know if that means. So I'm just going to tell you, I'm flummoxed. I'm flummoxed, but I think what the creed says is we somehow we believe in God doing something with that and the agents who participate in it, who sometimes are us. You know. I even think, just to kind of conclude that, my parents use words, cultural words that make me really uncomfortable. I'll just give you an easy one that's maybe less uncomfortable. Words like Oriental. My dad went to Vietnam. He uses other words like that, you know? And I'm on the outside of that, and I think that's really bad that my dad's not, a, he's not any more racist than I am. He uses words I don't use, but I've got racism in me, you know? It's one thing to say, oh, you use that word, you're a racist, and I'm not, and that's great. We've deluded ourselves, you know? Just, God has come to deliver all of us from that sort of stuff. And of course, he uses those words right because, well, I mean, he went to Vietnam and he fought those people. And that was a coping mechanism. But also because that's the way society and his parents taught him to talk. So to say when you're 70 years old, you can't talk like that anymore, it didn't mean anything. You know, <laughs> it didn't mean anything. What's interesting is to hear my dad use one of those words and then to hear him say that a communist is a man trying to feed his children. And that's an interesting kind of oxymoron to put together. I don't even know really where he is in the middle of those things, but I know he says both of them. Yeah, and that's a real frustrating thing to hear when you're a youth. And I think the truth that there, oddly enough, I, I'm, I'm deciding there probably is some truth to it, you know, that, that I think we strive against it, that, um, again, I think, we, I think we delude ourselves when we say we're not. I don't know, I mean, uh, again, this is flummoxing. I am probably really disappointed you today with that. Because um, I think it's mysterious, I just, I do, I think it's mysterious, and, and how, how people can sort of operate in this realm or be thrust in there as infants, I just think it's, un- I just think it's unfair. But I, but, I, but I think it's real. I think it really happens to people that as infants they get put there and what their recovery or their forgiveness or their acceptance looks like, I'm still trying to figure it out. I think probably everybody in the room is, st- if you know the answer, please tell me. I will, I will budget hours in my day to hear what that means for you. If I didn't have a good little grip on that one. Oh, I thought we were going to be done today, but I guess not. We, we will, uh, we'll, we'll do one more thing on the resurrection of the body, because that's a fascinating one. Uh, I guess we'll do that in two weeks. Three weeks. Okay. Uh, see. see, see, see that. Next week, Bishop Monterey will be here. It'll be really interesting. I think. It won't be weird like this. It'll be a beat and neat. Okay. I think it'll be a beat and neat.